So egg and milk follow those similarly where the proteins can be broken down as they're cooked to higher temperatures. So there's kind of two different forms of food allergy for those specific foods. And if you're able to tolerate uh, baked egg or baked milk early in life and have repeated exposure, you're at a much higher chance of outgrowing it and outgrowing that food allergy faster. So about 70 to 75% of children with egg or milk allergy will outgrow it sometime in the first few years of school. Um, but, but those who really are successful, they are already eating those baked products early on because they're getting some exposure to those proteins. So the immune system starts looking at it and saying, eh, it's not really that big of a deal. Welcome to the Well Child Podcast, hosted by Dr. Sammy and Dr. Anna, two board-certified pediatricians and best friends known as the PediPals. This is a safe space where parents, caretakers, guardians, and those interested in pediatric health can find accurate parenting and medical information to raise healthy and happy children. To stay connected with us, follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at The PediPals, or visit our website at www.thepdpals.com. We are so grateful to have had a successful first season where we invited widely respected experts to discuss important topics. Here's to an even better season two just for you. Welcome to another episode of The Well Child. Today, we have a really exciting topic that is a big topic in many parents' lives and revolves, it is a, is a big topic in our life too, as two pediatricians. It's going to be all about allergies. And for this episode, we have none other than our newfound BFF online, one of the fellow PED squads and fellow misinformation fighter, Dr. Rubin. Dr. Rubin is a pediatric allergist immunologist. He learned he earned his Bachelor of Arts in medical degree from Case Western Reserve University. He has completed his general pediatric residency at the University of Illinois College of Medicine in Chicago and his allergy immunology fellowship at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. He has various publications in food allergy and primary immunodeficiencies in children. We love following him on social media and both Sammy and I have learned so much from him. He's a wealth of information and he's one of our, um, our favorites online. So don't forget to follow him on all of his social media accounts. So welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for, for having me. I feel like it's been a long time coming to be able to talk to both of you. Um, we've been spending a lot of time together online through TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, and, and to be able to collaborate on a podcast is just really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and texting, don't forget. <laughs> yes. Because as, as a member of the PED squad that we've come together, we, we are talking to each other all the time about all the current events with COVID, with general pediatrics issues, you know, all the different Twitter beefs that's going on. We're, we're just, you know, a team now. I, I love it. It's great. Yeah. It's kind of crazy how it brought us together, but it's been awesome. <laughs> Like-minded individuals who are, very science-based and evidence-based who want what, what is best for people. So can't go wrong. Absolutely. And social so media is such an isolating world that when you get like, you know, your people, uh, you know, with you, it just makes it so much better. It feels like you're really in this together. So we, we appreciate you. Likewise. So before we get, um, before we really delve into all of our questions, because I have so many questions about this topic, uh, because this is really definitely a pain point for a lot of our families. Um, and this is a big topic in pediatrics, but if you can tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what brought you to allergy and immunology, that would be wonderful. Absolutely. So I've been in a private practice for two years now at Oakbrook Allergist in DuPage County, Illinois. That's just west of Chicago. Um, I primarily take care of children, but I also take care of adults as well. That's one of the unique aspects of allergy and immunology is you actually are cross-trained to take care of kids and adults, regardless of what your initial specialty is. So I spend about 75% of my time taking care of kids, the other 25% taking care of adults, which in that aspect of allergy has been nice to be able to understand the COVID-19 vaccine and allergic reactions that come with it. Um, so I do a lot of consultations regarding that. But I really got my start in allergy when I was a medical student. 
I was already interested in going to pediatrics and had applied for pediatrics residency. But when I did some rotations in allergy and immunology, I really just it just opened my eyes to what that field could do. Um, it's one of the final frontiers in medicine when we talk about clinical immunology, that there's so much that is not known that we're continually learning. And it makes it a very exciting journey that I can see throughout my career, seeing new advancements along the way. You know, as an example, there's been explosion of biologic therapies um, over the past 20 years. And so we are continually learning more and more about these medications and adding on new indications, new treatment strategies for severe allergic diseases. Um, and that's translating to other areas of medicine. And it's exciting to be learning about that all along the way. So while there's some bread and butter issues that all fields have, I feel like allergy is one of these fields that continually grows. And as our children grow up, because I have that cross training, I get to take care of them when they're older. So I see that as a part of a longitudinal aspect of my career that I'm very excited. I like being in the outpatient world. I don't like being in the hospital personally. So I like to be able to take care of my patients and make sure that they stay out of the hospital and practice preventive medicine from that standpoint. That's awesome. Yeah. And that is very exciting, cutting edge stuff. So I love that for you. That does sound super exciting. And it was really cool that you get to follow your patients up until adulthood. Um, so we know why we refer generally to an allergist uh, as general pediatricians, and we'll touch on that a little bit, but what do you feel like are the things that you most commonly see patients for so that the people listening to this podcast know if they might need to see an allergist? Absolutely. So some of the common things being common being severe allergic rhinitis, and we see that in children where it impacts their quality of life, where they've tried traditional medication, whether it's your oral antihistamines like Zyrtec and Benadryl, that's over the counter, or nasal sprays like Flonase and Nasacort. If those things aren't really working, they do need to see me so we can identify what they're actually sensitive to and learn ways to reduce exposure. And they may need allergen immunotherapy, also known as allergy shots. That, that's one of the common things being common. Asthma while general pediatricians should be able to take care of 90% of that issue, when you get to the more moderate to severe persistent uh, asthmatics, those may require higher levels of therapy. They may need to identify what their triggers are, and they may need to go on a medication called a biologic that alters their immune system to be less responsive uh, for asthma. Same thing with eczema. This is a, a chronic itchy inflammatory skin condition that we can help identify by what those triggers could be um, and give them higher levels of therapy. And again, there's biologics for, for that treatment as well. Food allergy is a, a big staple of what we do for, for children. And there's a lot of confusing aspects in terms of just diagnosing food allergy. Um, oftentimes we get referrals from other physicians who are ordering lots of tests and we have to go through and try to decipher what is actually relevant in those situations and then manage that appropriately. So we have a lot of patients that we have to deal with food allergy. Drug allergy is also very important to identify in children as well, because oftentimes there's a confusion as to whether or not a child is allergic to a drug. We don't want them to carry those labels as much as possible. So it's really important if you think your child has a drug allergy and need that to get addressed, the only field that actually does that is allergy. Um, it's one of the few things where there's very little overlap. The other ones that I mentioned, there's other fields that overlap with it, like ENT and dermatology, but there's really no other field that deals primarily with drug allergy, and we do take care of that in children as well. And another aspect is when children develop chronic hives and swelling, or also known as urticarian angioedema. Um, that is where you get hives and swelling for more days than not for six weeks or longer. And so that's something that we can help manage uh, for pediatricians as well. Um, I just as an offshoot to that question that Sammy just asked, I was just curious if there is a particular age where you um, start seeing a lot of patients. Is, is there an age that's too young to see an allergist or is there a preference that you, that you, you know, in your field that uh, is more likely, you know, would be more beneficial? Absolutely. So when we talk about allergy testing, you can theoretically do a skin test as young as three months of age, because that's when the allergy antibodies just start to become apparent. But that doesn't mean that we're going to test infants that young. Um, the, the earliest we're seeing children is around four to six months of age when they start introduction of solid foods. And we have to determine, 
Is there a peanut allergy? Is there a risk for that? Um, or they might start developing adverse reactions to food. So that that's where we start seeing children as young as four to six months of age. Talk about environmental allergies, though. Really, it's better to kind of wait, probably until they're closer to two or above, because a child needs to see at least two full seasons before they really develop enough allergy antibodies to do proper testing. Because otherwise, if you do it too young, it may be falsely negative, and then you have to retest them anyways. You don't really know exactly what's going on. Plus, a lot of the allergy medications aren't approved below the age of two, and we try to do more with less. So we don't really want to give them a lot of medications early on. So food allergy patients, yes, early in life. A little bit later in life, if you're thinking about more seasonal or perennial allergic rhinitis. I love that. And also I would add that a lot of the times I think people mistake their children's, you know, seasonal allergies. They think their children might have seasonal allergies, but they just have what I like to lovingly call daycare So they just have a chronic runny nose from getting exposed to a bunch of daycare germs. And then once they're kind of done with that phase in their life, they miraculously get better. And so, so a lot of the times I think parents have the misconception that their children have allergies from a young age, but it's not truly allergies. So giving them that extra time to see, you know, how their immune system develops, I guess, over time is also helpful. And then, yeah. And, um, then there's the, the vice versa too. I find that a lot of the times parents kind of have an inkling that their children have allergies right from the get-go, but I usually tell them to wait. And then in the end, sometimes it's like, yeah, you were right. They probably have had this for a while, but it was the right thing for us to wait and really let it declare itself. I totally agree. And, and one of the things that I try to stress to families is if you have a child with eczema, those are children that are more likely to start developing other allergic diseases. We call that the atopic march. Those are children that may have an increased risk of developing food allergy, seasonal allergies, you know, allergic rhinitis, um, asthma. And so if we can treat that eczema really well, that may lessen the severity or reduce the risk of developing those other allergic diseases. So I, I really strongly urge families to have good skin care early in life to help reduce the risk of those other things developing. I have to know what's good skincare. Good skincare is a little bit of a debate, right? So there's no exact right way to do it. But from my perspective, we talk about eczema as an issue with an abnormal skin barrier, where it's very, very easy for water to leak out of the skin and dry out the skin, which can increase the risk of developing inflammation or all these immune cells coming in and causing red, irritated, itchy skin. That starts that whole itch scratch cycle where people start scratching their skin, they itch because they're scratching, and then they scratch because they itch. And it's this vicious cycle that can also increase the risk of developing infections and other things like food or environmental allergens coming into the skin. So what we want to try to do is moisturize as much as possible. So I believe in actually bathing daily, minimizing soap use. So you don't really need to use that much soap and don't have to use it every day, but soaking in the tub 10 to 15 minutes with lukewarm water, pat dry afterwards, and then put on either a cream or heavy ointment to really lock in that moisture that you just put back into the skin. It's really important, especially in the wintertime when things are dry out, the skin can really leak out and you want to do that every day and even consider putting on a moisturizer twice a day to really make sure that things don't leach out. Clothing also matters too. So children should be wearing soft cotton, loose fitting clothing. So it's not abrasive to the skin. Anything, you know, I see a lot of children where their wrists or their ankles have eczema lesions on it because very tight with that elastic that's there. So we got to watch out for how that clothing is actually rubbing up against the skin. And it's tough because children grow so quickly early in life that they're constantly outgrowing these different sizes, but you got to be cognizant that you might need to consider going to a size up earlier then you would normally do that to help prevent flaring up of the, of the skin that way. Yeah. And, and eczema is such a complicated, you know, it's, it's such a big topic and I really, we really encourage our parents to talk to their pediatricians early on so that we can also identify those risk factors. You know, mom has it, dad has it, all the siblings have it. They have these food allergies. So then we can really stratify the risk and then decide, you know, what steps we want to take initially to prevent some of these things and when they need the allergies. So I think when in doubt, it's always good to bring 
it up to your pediatrician and uh, figure out early, right? Prevention is key. And that's why we're all here. Try to figure this stuff out early as, as much as you can. So I love that breakdown of eczema. Okay. So for the next question, I, I really am curious about food allergies because that is um, something that, you know, there's, there's so many um, different products that are available to us out here in the West and it gets very complicated. So what are some of the common signs of food allergies that you see and how do you test for them? Yeah, it's a great question because there's so many misconceptions about what food allergy actually is. And it seems like it's this catch-all term. But when we think about food allergy, it's a part of the smaller bucket of a bigger bucket of adverse food reactions. So people can have different symptoms related to food, but it may not have the same mechanism. And so the traditional way of thinking about food allergy is an abnormal immune response driven by an allergy antibody called IgE. So that process, you get exposed to that food at some point in your immune system, driven by B cells, produce these IgE antibodies, and that process is called sensitization. On subsequent exposure, when you eat that food again, you then can have a serious reaction to it. And there's different symptoms. The most common in children would be hives. They look like mosquito bites. They can be all over the body or just located to one region, like on the face. You could have swelling, which is a continuum of hives. It's the same kind of process, but that swelling, if it goes into the tongue and throat, can be potentially life-threatening. You could also have multiple episodes of vomiting, problems breathing, and rare cases, a drop in blood pressure and pass out, or a combination of these types of symptoms. All of this is related to a potentially life-threatening situation called anaphylaxis. And so it's really important to differentiate that from other causes of adverse food reactions because you need to be very careful with your diet and read labels carefully, because even the smallest amount could trigger a life-threatening reaction. And the treatment of choice, number one, number two, number three is epinephrine. Epinephrine is an injectable medicine, can be life-saving. It acts within five to 10 minutes and can reverse that reaction from happening um, and, and save someone's life. So it's really important to be able to identify that, which is a potentially reprodu it's a reproducible process. You have to identify that and be careful about it because the testing that is often done is a blood test or a skin test. And for a long time, people were doing panels of foods where somebody had a reaction and they ended up doing multiple foods, measuring that antibody in the blood that could bind to it. So, so there's different panels that labs offer, but I don't recommend anybody getting those panels unless you talk to an allergist, because really the best way to approach it is to say, let's get a good history. Let's find out, did this person react to this particular food? And let's test towards that. And my approach is I start with a skin test where I take a drop of an extract of like peanut, put it on the skin and see, do we get a hive? because that indirectly measures that allergy antibody. And that tells us, yes, there's a potential for that reaction to happen. A clinical history plus that skin test is the most approximate way to diagnose a food allergy outside of doing something called an oral food challenge, where somebody eats that food in small incremental doses over several hours to determine, okay, did they have the same reaction or not the same type of symptoms? That's the gold standard. But we don't do that in everybody because that carries a lot of risk for that child, it's a lot of liability, it's a lot of time and resource and effort to do that. So we rely on a story and a skin test to approximate that. The blood test is really meant to look at the risk of having a reaction. And I say that very carefully because the test doesn't tell you severity. It just says, will I, you know, what's the risk if I eat this small amount? Will I have any kind of symptom that I had mentioned previously? That's it. Nobody can predict whether or not the next time you accidentally eat something, it could be life-threatening. And that's the problem with food allergy, that we have to understand that we don't know if the next time is going to be severe or not. So this idea of having a, a mild food allergy versus a severe food allergy, to me, is a myth. You just have it or you don't. That's the way I like to think about it, so that everybody takes it seriously, since we don't know what the next reaction is going to be. And so getting that blood test will not only confirm it, tell us that risk, but then we track that over time to see, does that child outgrow the food allergy or not? And depending on which food allergy they have, we have a good sense of which ones may be outgrown, which ones may not be outgrown. That's such a great synopsis. I want to add like a 
take home message to it. And then I want to add it with the careful verbiage and, and knowing that you are here and excuse my dog. <laughs> um, and that way, you know, having a specialist here for parents, like they can really listen to this, but Zach and I have actually talked about this before and we agree and science agrees. And it's not just him and I that agree, but science agrees that early introduction of solids is extremely beneficial to children and babies in reducing the risk of food allergies. So for example, a lot of misconceptions is to wait till you're a year old or two years to give high allergy foods like peanut and eggs. That's not good. You are increasing the chances of your child actually having an allergy to those foods. So the same goes for the blood test. So a lot of times parents will get scared, like say, for example, I don't know, um, they're, they're scared their child might have a peanut allergy, so they'll request a blood test. Well, what we see happen, and I know Zach sees it too, and probably to a like 10,000 times more of a degree, is that they might get this blood test for peanuts. It will show some type of positive you know, reaction, and then they'll avoid peanuts. And then in doing so, you might have actually created an allergy in your child and where, you know, the next time they get exposed to it, say by accident, when they're at a birthday party where someone brought some Reese's peanut butter cups, they will actually have an anaphylactic reaction. Whereas had you just started to introduce it to them between the ages of four to six months, you, you might've built some type of tolerance towards allergies and uh, towards peanuts. So do you feel like that's a good thing for parents, like did I kind of word that right? Yeah. yeah. And I'm going to add towards that. And that's a really important aspect because the initial question was talking about testing itself yes. you know, and the signs for food allergy. But in terms of prevention, part of it is just don't look for things. Don't go fishing for things and fishing for problems. Because again, what I had said before, the blood test tells us sensitization, doesn't tell us allergy. That, that's a totally different thing. Allergy is an abnormal immune response to a foreign substance. And these tests without a clinical history, it really doesn't mean much, but could create more problems, like you said. So as a personal story, I had a patient in my fellowship come in who was diagnosed with peanut allergy originally, but they only got that blood test because they reacted to something else. And when they got it for peanuts, uh, it's at a fairly high level, but the kid was eating peanut butter by the spoonful. Like, like it really wasn't a big deal, but they avoided it for a couple of years. And so when we did an oral food challenge, the child had anaphylaxis. When you have that, it can become reactive over time. So that's what, what you were saying in terms of we could give someone an allergy that way. So that's true. People often get these blood tests because of eczema, thinking that food really drives it when in reality, it doesn't drive most of it. Yeah. So you got to be careful about that. So I avoid testing for foods with kids with eczema because we already know that eczema increases the risk of sensitization significantly. Yeah. You know, ju just the four, four of us, uh, the three of us talking right now, one of us probably has allergy antibody and it doesn't matter. It, as long as we're continuing to eat, eat these things, we're not going to have a food allergy. Uh, a lot of people are sensitized and it doesn't really mean much. Um, I, I've had plenty of patients come in with the, with a blood test for food because they had a stuffy nose chronically, mm -hmm. um, thinking that food triggers that. And there's really no immunologic basis from food causing nasal congestion. Now, as a caveat in adults, I have seen a lot of people complain of stuffy nose after drinking milk, and that's probably real, but it's not the same kind of immunologic mechanism, IgE mediated that the test looks for. Uh, there's other types of reactions that we just don't fully understand. So when people say they're sensitive to foods and, and when children think that they're sensitive to foods, there's not really an immunologic mechanism that we can actually diagram and test for. It doesn't mean that those symptoms aren't real. It just means that the test that we use for it is inappropriate. And we have to listen to people and understand that what they're experiencing is real, but don't go testing for it with the wrong test. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's so important. And, and sorry, Anna, I know you've been dying to say something. I'm so sorry. Um, but I really want to like hone that into. So like take home message here is that you are either very allergic to something um, and you will know because you know, your, your allergist will confirm that for you, or you might have an intolerance or a sensitivity to something. And so in that case, we always say in medicine, you have to treat the patient 
not the test. So say you're somebody who's been having stomach trouble, you are way more likely to fix your, your tummy troubles by just doing like, you know, just testing on yourself. Like, Oh, I just had this banana that didn't sit well. Um, I just had this and that didn't go well, but you know what? I just drank that entire jug of milk and I'm totally fine. That's a way more, um, like a, a way better way to test your own body than to go do any kind of kit that that charges you two hundred dollars to oh, send yeah. to your house. Oh yeah, <laughs> any kind of blood test that's basically going to give you a list of things that you're probably tolerating really well and going to confuse the heck out of you. Yeah, so so that's a really important point. There's these at home food intolerance tests or food sensitivity tests, and I have have to talk a little bit about this because it's circulating all over the place and it's really not scientifically proven. So what those tests are looking for is an antibody called IgG4 that could bind to these foods. That's a different word than IgE. IgG4 is actually a tolerance antibody. So when we eat commonly, how does our body know that it's not something foreign and could kill us? It, we have to have a way to tolerate it. So those antibodies are made naturally. And so you could get a panel of foods, $200 or so to that antibody and find, you know, oh my gosh, bananas really high. I really shouldn't be eating it. Well, they just eat bananas all day. So that that's why their body just generally makes that adult patients. They, they drink coffee a lot. So I get these things that say coffee is really high is, is, is the same kind of example. Um, if you're concerned that a food is triggering symptoms, just take that one food out of your diet for two weeks and see, do, you, do your symptoms get better? then put it back in and see, does it get worse? If it does, then you should probably limit consumption of that food. That is the type of, I call it a single food elimination diet um, as a way to just hone in on one thing. And then you just limit that consumption. That's very different than people who have a type one IgE mediated hypersensitivity that we call food allergy that needs an EpiPen. And if we have a clear understanding of the differences between that, it'll take away some of the stigma that's associated with food allergy, because often, unfortunately, food allergy is the butt of a lot of jokes that we see on social media. Um, even on like Saturday Night Live or late night talk shows, you'll see this from time to time when this is a population that these children and adults and the families, they have to change their lifestyles. Otherwise, they could have a potentially life-threatening situation. And unfortunately, there are some people who have fatal reactions every year. It happens. Yeah. And, and, and so I don't want people to be living in fear because of it, but we have to all be educated so we can support um, these individuals. Yeah. And, and a lot of the, I love all this information. This is all so great because we're dispelling myths here, you know, and I think all of these um, go around and they just add to the misinformation because people have little bits of information and they're trying to generalize that. And that's when it gets dangerous when you're generalizing these big concepts for everybody. And we know each body is so unique, you know? Um, so for practicality purpose, if you have a child like that, we see, you know, at four months, we have this talk with them. We say, okay, you know, given that they have good head control and they can start trying some baby foods, we start early introduction, veggies, fruits, you know, one thing at a time so we can monitor, um, you know, if they have any reactions, which we know that initially they might not have a severe allergic reaction, it'll be on subsequent exposures. And then usually I tell them, you know, we go into the other foods like uh, peanut butter, eggs, avocado, we do little taste tests. And then um, oftentimes we also ask them not to just try, you know, peanuts once and then not do it again for like a year. Right. So we want them right. to continue to have it. So usually I'll say um, two to three times a week in some form, you know, continue the exposure. Now, would you agree with that? Is there anything else you want to add to just the practicality? No, I, no. I absolutely agree with that. Um, it's really important not only to have early introduction, but regular exposure to make sure that you decrease the risk of developing those food allergies. And the other thing that uh, some families who have a child with food allergy, their sibling, oftentimes they avoid that food thinking that they're going to also have it as well. And I strongly discourage that. Families should be able to encourage feeding the other child, the sibling, um, those foods. If they're very concerned, go to an allergist and talk about it, but I wouldn't go testing. Again, don't test just to test. Uh, family history of food allergies does not mean that you have to test. A reason to test would be like somebody who has a history of an 
egg allergy when they're an infant, or if they have moderate to severe eczema. Those would be reasons that you could consider testing limited to basically peanut and maybe tree nut. Right. Right. And I love that the point that you brought up about the egg, because this is another thing, you know, a lot of kids might have a reaction with eggs or scrambled eggs, but they, if they eat eggs cooked in a muffin or in another form, you know, they tolerate it well. So we often encourage them, you know, continue to ex- expose them to that protein, uh, because if you cut it out completely, then that could be even more, uh, you know, detrimental, right? Look right. So egg and milk follow those similarly where the proteins can be broken down as they're cooked to higher temperatures. So there's kind of two different forms of food allergy for those specific foods. And if you're able to tolerate uh, baked egg or baked milk early in life and have repeated exposure, you're at a much higher chance of outgrowing it and outgrowing that food allergy faster. So about 70 to 75% of children with egg or milk allergy will outgrow it sometime in the first few years of school. Um, but, but those who really are successful, they are already eating those baked products early on because they're getting some exposure to those proteins. So the immune system starts looking at it and saying, eh, it's not really that big of a deal. That is such good advice. It's, I just think, I hope everyone listens to this because it's such good advice. Um, to, to kind of change gears a little bit, um, how about asthma? <laughs> so uh, any pearls to offer to the you know general public about asthma and Um, you know, what do you feel like children's chances are if they've been diagnosed for outgrowing that? Right. So asthma comes in all sorts of different flavors. Unfortunately, there's some children who have very intermittent symptoms. They only need a rescue inhaler. Others who have more persistent symptoms, they've got to take medication every single day. And, and the triggers vary widely. So if you've got a child who's only relying on a rescue inhaler every so often, they're much more likely to outgrow that problem. But those who take daily medication, they're less likely to outgrow asthma. And oftentimes they may go through periods of their life where they may not rely on it as much. We're learning more and more that it's actually more persistent than we think. And so an allergist can help provide some insight on what those potential triggers can be, because a lot of it can be driven by allergies. So we can do testing to figure out what's going on in the environment that they may be sensitive to, to help reduce some of those exposures. Sometimes allergy shots can be helpful to decrease that immune response. And for those who are very severe, they may need a biologic therapy. So we we have that for a lot of children now. There's different types that we can provide based on the type of asthma that they have. Um, We're learning more and more over the last 10, 20 years that there's different types like allergic asthma or eosinophilic driven asthma. That's a type of white blood cell called eosinophils that could be driving this abnormal immune response that's leading to symptoms of coughing, wheezing, shortness of breath, chest tightness, and decreasing kind of overall functioning to do things like running and playing sports. Um, so, So it's really important Uh, for people to kind of get that sense of what that type of asthma is so we can actually tailor that treatment a little bit better. Um, I like to tell families that you should think about my rule of twos to know if your asthma is well-controlled or not. So I tell families, okay, you should not be having symptoms more than two days a week, especially over a four-week period. You should not be having symptoms more than two nights a month waking you up earlier than usual in a given month. You should not be using your rescue inhaler more than two times a week. Again, rule of twos. Anything that's going above that, I want them to call me. I want to know about it. So if I need to change their medicine, asthma is a chronic disease that can wax and wane. You may need to have more medicine. And if you come in more frequently, we may be able to decrease your medicine. Uh, During the pandemic, oftentimes we were a little bit more conservative to say, well, if we have poorly controlled asthma, there is an increased risk of having severe COVID. So we want to make sure it's under tip-top shape. So we might not decrease your medicine much, but if you don't have that regular follow-up, we won't know how you're doing. And so it's really important for children, especially with persistent asthma, to be seen regularly, probably at least every six months. And if it's out of control, we got to see you even sooner to make sure that things are well controlled. Because the worst thing that we could have happen is you have an asthma attack, you need systemic steroids like prednisone. Those have significant side effects compared to taking like an inhaled steroid every day. Um, and we want to keep them out of the emergency room. We want to keep them out of the hospital because as not a benign disease, there can be some 
some very severe consequences that happen to children. And I've seen some of those, those uh, rare severe cases and it, and it really is heartbreaking when that happens. Fortunately, it's rare though, but we wanna make sure we keep those kids healthy. Yeah, this is this is gold. This is a wealth of information because I, I really am glad that you broke down asthma in that way because a lot of parents tend to not really look at it as a chronic illness and something that needs a lot of attention and noticing. You know, I think the biggest thing I tell families, you know, asthma comes in so many varieties. You know, you could be triggered by weather, allergies, um, exercise, colds. You know, every every child is so different, and a lot of parents think, you know, asthma, wheezing, attack, go to the hospital, but you have those cough variant asthmas where kids just cough, you know, every night or they cough so often. So what you said right there, I just want to emphasize those two points that first noticing is big, noticing when your child is having symptoms and what's triggering them. That's a big first step to figuring out how we can control it long-term. And then also not being quick to stop medicines and treatments, because a lot of times families will say, oh, they're doing better. And then they'll stop and symptoms will return. And then we, you know, then we see them again when they have the next really bad flare up. And our goal is to avoid needing those systemic, you know, those oral steroids, like the prednisolone repetitively. That's what we want to try to avoid. Right. So I just love that you said that because so many times there's variations, uh, in asthma and, and how it presents in kids, but, uh, keeping on top of it and noticing those signs is so important, but thank you. Thank you for saying that. But I did want to ask you, how you noticed um, asthma play out during COVID? Did you see? Um, did you see it kind of change? Did you see those kids having a harder time during the pandemic if they got sick with COVID? Just wanted to pick your brain. Right. So what I've seen personally, what I've talked to other allergists across the country, is that uh, families that have children with asthma tended to stay at home more, wear masks more, be a little bit more careful because in the very beginning of the pandemic on the list of potential uh, issues related to an increased risk of developing severe COVID was asthma. It was listed there and a lot of families were really scared. And so for a long time, I saw almost no asthma in my clinic because they weren't getting sick. They were staying away from people. They were wearing masks. Transmission of other respiratory viruses wasn't happening because that's one of the most common triggers of asthma in children is is a viral upper respiratory infection. Um, and especially when kids weren't in school, they weren't transmitting it amongst each other. The most common time in the year that children have asthma attacks is September, around that time when school starts. As everybody comes together and the weather's starting to change, weather changes another trigger. Those things is like the perfect storm for having all these asthma exacerbations happening. But we didn't see that. Early on, there was a study that showed that there was like an 80% decrease in pediatric ER visits for asthma. And, and that decrease has been seen throughout most, a lot of the pandemic. So in my practice, I saw very little severe asthma patients because they were doing fine. Now, as things are starting to open up, I unfortunately anticipate with masks coming off that a lot of these problems are going to come back again. And one of the other issues is when we look at this longitudinally, where we look at adult patients, we look at pediatric patients, if your asthma is well-controlled, your risk of having severe COVID doesn't significantly increase. But if you have poorly controlled asthma, that's where I worry because there are significant increase in problems leading to ICU admission, oxygen use, vent, you know, being on a ventilator, those severe problems are there. So that's why I always stress, if you think your asthma is not well controlled by those metrics as I talked about earlier, you really need to talk with your physician about changing management. If you were told to take an inhaler every day, there is no such thing as holidays. There's no such thing as weekends. You take it every single day, no matter what. And one of the fears that I have seen throughout my career that parents talk about is what are the long-term side effects of these inhalers? We've actually had good longitudinal uh, data. There was a study from New England Journal of Medicine almost 10 years ago now, looking at children who are on a medium dose inhaled steroid, tracked them over several years and found the major side effect was a reduction in their adult height by a half an inch. So, you know, maybe they won't be able to go into the NBA if it's a half an inch, but even then I don't think it's a big deal, really. The thing is, if you take prednisone on a regular basis, a systemic steroid can really stunt children 
person's growth. And that's one of the big reasons why I tell families, you don't want to be taking prednisone unless you really need to. And we want to reduce that risk as much as possible, because that's where significant long-term side effects can come into play when you have to rely on them like that. And not just the, the growth with the steroids, but it can affect their immune system and uh, kind of wreak havoc on that. And it can definitely mess with their hormones. It can cause them to um, have all kinds of hormonal disruptions too. Um, which, behavioral issues and sleep mm-hmm. and school performance, all of that is affected as well. Yeah. And, and it, which also brings me to the fact that you are not, we've only been talking about allergy, but you are an allergist slash immunologist. So you are also extremely well-versed in all things immune system. Um, and so a lot of the times I meant to ask like, Anna, what do you refer um, patients to the allergist for? And a lot of the times we do refer you to patients to you if we're concerned about their immune system in any way if they have a family history of an immune deficiency, or if they have, uh, you know, symptoms that make us concerned that their immune system is not working right. And by the way, those are very, very rare circumstances. Cause I know a lot of times parents are like, my child's getting sick a lot. Is there something wrong with the immune system? But, but no, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. If your child has something wrong with their immune system, they'd be in the hospital all the time. Exactly. So you know, I'm in the community. And so my role mainly is to kind of identify if there's any of these problems. And oftentimes if there is treatment that's needed, they need to go to an academic tertiary care center to get more treatment. But one of the most common things that I would see is if for whatever reason, a teenager had to get antibody titers or a young adult has to get antibody titers, and it's not showing that their immune systems responding to vaccines, we have to investigate why is that happening? So that, that's a common referral that way. Um, some aller- allergist immunologists will be on staff to look at newborn screening because there's a very rare condition called severe combined immune deficiency or SCID that we now test in every state in the country early on. And if we can identify that, we can treat that and it can be potentially curative if identified early. So we have to look at that blood test and see. That's very, very rare for that stuff to happen though. Um, you know, a lot of kids get colds all the time. That doesn't mean that their immune system is not functioning. I mean, there, there's just bad luck and being in daycare and being in school. Five to six colds a year is not a big deal. We start worrying though, if they're in the hospital a lot, if they're requiring IV antibiotics, if they're getting all sorts of uh, infections of pneumonia and sinus infections early in life. We worry about that. Um, We worry about these kind of odd infections that can kind of linger, but they get thrush after, you know, infancy when they're out of diapers, that's, that's kind of unusual. So those types of things, we get referrals to work up and see, could they have something called a primary immune deficiency where they're immune system is just not able to fight off infections. That's not the same as HIV folks. HIV is an infectious disease. That's a secondary cause of immune deficiency versus I'm dealing with a genetic issue that's causing them not able to fight off infections. That's great. Yeah. I was curious as to what your general advice is, because, you know, a lot of parents, uh, you know, a lot of children now are are able to get the COVID vaccine that are five and up. We're still waiting for the younger kids to be able to get vaccinated. But in this current phase that we're at with the pandemic, what's your best advice being an immunologist, you know, specializing in the immune system. This is the big thing that's on all of our minds. Um, what's your best advice for parents during this time? Right. So first off, I have to dispel a myth, which is the fact that people think that there's such a thing as an immune booster. That is not true, okay? So so what we really have to talk about with the immune system is keeping a healthy balance. And so children need to be exercising, sleeping well, eating eating a well-balanced diet. And we have to do the best we can to minimize stress. Stress is a powerful immune suppressant. It really lowers your ability to fight off infection. So if we are in an environment that's very stressful, that's gonna increase the chances of getting infected with viruses like COVID, as an example. Um, Children who are five and above can get the COVID vaccine and it's still showing effectiveness, not only against infection, but primarily against severe disease. And we are confident that it'll reduce the risk of having lingering issues or severe issues like 
multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children or MISC um, or long COVID, these lingering issues, which we do see in kids, unfortunately. So it is really important if your child has not gotten vaccinated yet to consider doing so. For the families who you know I can empathize with who have children under five, we have to do the best we can to make sure those around them are vaccinated, are boosted, that you are a little bit more cognizant of who's around um, that child who is not able to get vaccinated yet. Um, and so all of those things, I think when it comes together, we will get through this. It's been a tough couple of years. We're, we're in year three now, um, but I am confident in the next couple of months, we'll have vaccines available down to age six months. Fingers crossed. <laughs> I feel like every time we've said that, there's been a setback. So fingers crossed. <laughs> fingers crossed. <laughs> this is why we get along so well, because sorry, I was just going to say me and Sammy always say that. And I'm so glad you cleared up that myth because a lot of parents come in and tell us, what can I give? What vitamin can I give my child? You know, and we're all like, if there was a magic pill, we would be all on it, you know, but there's right. no magic supplement, you know, it's good food, nutrition, exercise, sleep, rest, stress management. Those are the basics, right? Another way to think about it is if you're giving a lot of vitamins and supplements, your body is always attuned to being in a state of homeostasis or balance. And so if you're giving too much of something, then all it's going to do is it's going to get peed and pooped out. It's, it's yeah. not going to, it's not going to somehow magically supercharge your T cells and your B cells and your innate immune system and say, okay, now we can see that virus and kill it quickly. It doesn't work like that. Um, your kidneys and your liver are very fine tuned to filter all of these things and process them out and just spit it out. It doesn't like having too much of anything really. Um, so you're just making ex expensive pee by, by doing that. So it's different than somebody who is nutritionally deficient someone who has a vitamin D deficiency, like those types of things. Yes, you have to address the, those, those illnesses, whatever it may be, you do that. But for the general public, when you have healthy children, you, unless your pediatrician says otherwise, there's not really a reason to do like elderberry or, or these other things. It's not helpful. Exactly. And, and not only are you giving yourself expensive pee, you're significantly increasing your chance of vitamin toxicity, which is a real thing. And uh, kidney stones, which is another real thing. Yes. So uh, yes, <laughs> definitely talk to your pediatrician about um, supercharging your immune system, like you said. Well, I think we could probably talk to you all day and we covered such a wide range of topics in such a short amount of time. I'm really proud of us, actually. I feel like this was a lot of really good information for listeners. Um, any parting words and maybe let everyone know where they can find you? Sure. Um, so I'm on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram with the same handle. It's Ruben underscore allergy, R-U-B-I-N underscore allergy. Um, primarily on TikTok and Twitter, Instagram, you know, you can feel free to follow me there. Um, I, I think it's really important for folks to understand that if you have a child with allergies, there's a lot that we know and we can help take care of, but there's also times where we just don't have a good explanation for why certain things happen. And there's a lot of uncertainty in the field of allergy and immunology, and we're learning more and more as time goes on, but we do have to sit with some level of uncertainty um, of, you know, why did this happen to me? Is it my fault? Parents need to just take it easy and know that whatever has happened to your child is not your fault. It's okay. Life happens. The immune system abnormally responds. And we, we still are trying to learn about that, but just take comfort in knowing that we're trying to figure that out as best as we can with more and more research and development. That's wonderful. Okay, I have one more question. I'm sorry. Now that you mentioned that, because, because of the fact that you said that, and it's so true, like a lot of times moms and dads will be like, did we do something that made them, you know, have this allergy or have this condition or whatnot? Um, is there anything that, that pregnant moms can do to help out with like kind of reduce the risk? Cause we talked about early introduction and in the in thing that you do. Um, does it matter if, if anything that could be prenatal and it's okay if, if it doesn't, I was just curious. Well, we're actually looking into that right now. So there are clinical trials looking into, you know, does regular exposure of peanut during pregnancy mm -hmm. decrease the risk of developing food allergy for infants and, and children later in life? 
we don't know yet. We don't, we don't fully understand that. It kind of makes sense that it would, um, but I don't just tell every pregnant mom to just do that. We don't, we we don't have a ton of evidence yet. We're figuring that out. I hypothesize that it does, um, but we just, we just don't don't know. know. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you summed it up right. You know, there's a lot of parental guilt that goes on. And that's mainly the reason we did this podcast is because um, things are going to happen mysteriously. And they're really stressing about it, blaming yourself, having guilt. That's all, you know, impacting your immune system because it's adding stress and it's adding, um, you know, more guilt and shame. And so that's something that's definitely not going to help moms, whether they're pregnant or new moms or, you know, third and fourth time moms, uh, the stress doesn't help. So trust your pediatricians, trust your allergists and know that sometimes things happen, you know? Um, so I really appreciate you saying that at the end. It was great talking with you both. It's always fun to hang out with you. You too. Thank you so much for, for taking time out of your personal time to come and chat with us and to educate people. Um, I really appreciate it. It was so much fun. My pleasure. Thank you. You're tuned in to the Wild Child Podcast brought to you by the PD Pals. The PD Pals is our passion project and not-for-profit company where we aim to educate and empower parents and guardians and offer you accessible health tips. Our mission is to also support future female doctors. We currently have interns on our team who are all at different parts of their medical school journey. If you'd like to support our mission and help with our podcasting costs, you can donate to our Venmo at the PD Pals or our Zelle, which is hello at thepdpals.com. We greatly appreciate our audience's support. You can also support our interns on Venmo at interns-pdpals. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any other agency, hospital, organization, employer, or company. Assumptions made in the analysis are not reflective of the position of any entity other than the participants. The participants are critically thinking human beings. Therefore, these views are always subject to change, revision, reconsideration, and recalculation at any time. This podcast collaboration makes no warranties or representations as to accuracy, completeness, correctness, suitability, or validity of any information, communication, exchange, and the participants will not be liable for any errors, omissions, or delays in this information, or any losses, injuries, or damages arising from its broadcast dissemination or use. All information is provided on an as-is basis. It is the communication recipient's responsibility to verify any facts.